It's March in Arizona. So do you know what that means? It's the beginning of tree pollen season. Now, when I say the word pollen, you might think of bees, or maybe you think about a commercial for allergy medicine. But did you know that pollen contains a lot of information? That pollen isn't just useful for trees. It's useful for researchers and even for detectives. So we just try to help solve crimes and stop future crimes from happening by using pollen to figure out where it happened in the first place. Pollen can help with answers, but you might have a question. How? How can pollen, something so small, do things like solve cold cases? Well, come on into the lab and let's find out. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Lab at AZ Central. I'm your host, Alexandra Watts. This episode is about how scientists use pollen to help solve crimes. Now, this is not a true crime podcast. We won't go into graphic detail, but we want you to be aware that in this episode, we will talk about crimes, including a case that involves the death of a child. But the bulk of this episode is going to be focused on pollen. Did you know there's actually a whole field of study dedicated to pollen? It's called palynology, and we spoke to three people who do just that for a living. I'm Shannon Ferguson, and I'm a palynologist. My name is Andrew Lawrence, and I am a palynologist. And I'm Katie Bailey, and I'm also a palynologist. The three of us here, we are the only forensic palynologists in the United States. So our lab is free and open to all law enforcement, whether it's tribal, federal, state, local, doesn't matter who, we service everybody. On this episode, we're taking the lab out of state for a moment, but we'll be back in Arizona later. All three of them work at the Chicago Lab of U.S. Customs and Border Protection. So some days we're in the lab the whole time, some days we're on the microscope the whole day, so weeks at a time. Some days we're researching and some days we're report writing. So it just kind of depends on where you are in your case. But the days revolve around pollen, which they analyze in different kinds of cases. Still, how can something as tiny as pollen crack a case? There are about 380,000 species of plants on the planet, and each one has its own unique pollen grain. So it's best to think of pollen like a fingerprint for a plant. And since all of these plants are putting out pollen to the atmosphere, just as part of their normal reproductive cycle, it's going everywhere and it's being trapped on all sorts of objects. Pollen can be trapped in your fingernails, clothes, hair, basically everywhere. And it lasts a long time too. So Shannon, what's the oldest geological sample you've worked on? Personally, probably like 8,000 years. Recently, they found they moved back the earliest spore, like science published, I think in like August or something, they moved it, um, the first land spore back 20 million years. So now the, f- the oldest is 480 million years old. They can last quite a while. Yes. <laughs> Can't get rid of it. It can survive almost anything. It can take a beating. And she says that you process the samples the same way, no matter how old the pollen is. You process the sediment the same way, and you just have to know that time period as far as whether or not 
the pollen that it came from, the plants extinct, have to know, know the pollen for that time period. But pollen samples are not the same. And that's a good thing. That unique footprint is why scientists are able to use it. To the naked eye, all pollen might look similar, like a whitish or yellowish dust. But Lawrence says if you were to zoom in on pollen in a microscope, it would look unique depending on the plant. It may be covered with spines. You get others that may have a whole bunch of holes called pores that go around. Some that will look like a soccer ball because of that. Pine pollen grains actually like Mickey Mouse's head with the ears. <laughs> so each pollen grain has its own kind of unique look to it, which is what allows us to identify it under the microscope. They describe their job as kind of like Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego, the old video game and TV show where people used clues about geography to track down international villains. But yeah, the Where in the World Carmen Sandiego has a really good description because most people from before 2000 know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> we use pollen to try to track where things come from. Scientists can analyze pollen grains by location too, which makes them useful when looking for evidence in crimes. Basically, we're brought in to answer whatever questions that they want answered with regard to geolocation or its travel history. When investigators gather evidence, they send some of it to the lab. There, the palynologists use tools like tiny vacuums to find and isolate grains of pollen that may have been trapped on it, whether that's a piece of clothing or a bag of drugs. Then, they start investigating the spores or pollen grains they find. But it's not as easy as just looking at a sample and saying, oh, that pollen sample came from this plant, which is native to this place. We're going to have Lawrence and Ferguson talk about a case they worked on. Before they started working together in this lab, Lawrence and Ferguson worked on a case together. And pollen is a really important part of this case. So on uh, June 25th, in 2015, the remains of an unidentified child was found washed up on the shore of Deer Island, Massachusetts. The investigation is being run by the Massachusetts State Police, and they initially put out feelers to the community to see, did anyone have any knowledge of you know, who this person may have been? Well, no one came forward. The body had been in the water for a while. The baby who was then called Baby Doe, made news around the country. It was like national news everywhere, and they had no idea where to even start like looking. So they're getting in like calls from like all over, right, Andy? Like the law enforcement. And so they really wanted to like narrow in where to start looking for um, the suspects. And so that's why Pollen got involved. At the time, Ferguson was a doctoral student at Louisiana State University. This was her first summer really getting into palynology. They analyzed samples from the girl's hair, clothing, and the blanket she was wrapped in. Was Chantel processed and uh, analyzed the sample? And when looking at it, the majority of the pollen looked like it was a uh, northeastern United States, specifically south of the boreal forest. So we're really kind of looking at an area that was about east of the Appalachian Mountains, south of Maine, and north of about Philadelphia. But just because they had some insight to the location of these pollen grains, 
it doesn't mean that all of this was over quite yet. First, there was a lot of soot in the sample, which indicates industrial activity. So it looked like a major urban area within this region, so a major city. And he noticed something else in the pollen sample. But there were also two different species of cedrus, which is true cedar. And so just to kind of clarify, what most Americans call cedar is actually in the juniper family. And so now when I'm using the term cedar, I'm talking about genus cedrus, which is true cedar, of which there are only five species in the world. They're all native to the Middle East, North Africa, and the island of Cyprus. The more questions that pollen sometimes answers, the more questions researchers might have. And pollenologists have to put what they see under the microscope into context. Now, it wasn't until the early 1900s that cedrus made its way into the northeastern United States. What was happening during this time period was there was a cultural fad to, for basically wealthy people to grow a big exotic tree in their front yard as a status symbol. Say, hey, look at me. I'm so rich I can afford this big exotic tree in my front yard. He says that back in the day, wealthy people sent researchers from Harvard University on expeditions to find a fancy foreign tree they could import. And they eventually identified one, which was a particular variety of the cedar of Lebanon. To this day, that's the only species of cedrus that can grow in New England without extensive human intervention. And so the fact that there were two different species represented in the sample was very interesting. And with these samples, context, and overall knowledge, they were getting closer and closer. The overall pollen assemblage says, okay, we're in New England, south of Maine, east of the Appalachian Mountains, and north of about Philadelphia, Philadelphia and the north. So because we have that general assemblage and there was nothing else outside that area, the samples are from that region. So where did this exotic pollen grain come from? And so I started thinking, okay, who has the resources to keep a plant like this alive way out of its native habitat? And the most likely places are your arboretums and botanical gardens, places that have both the monetary resources and the knowledge to do so. And so I started scouring every botanical garden, arboretum, and even zoos in that area just to find, okay, who has more than one species of cedrus? And turns out I could only find two locations, the Arnold Arboretum in Boston, which is Harvard's Arboretum, and the Morris Arboretum in Philadelphia which is the University of Pennsylvania's Arboretum. So based entirely in the pollen assemblage, it can narrow it down beyond those two regions. He says that they were able to find a few locations that match the clues. And from there? Based on the proximity of Deer Island to Boston, the police decided that they were going to start there. And specifically the neighborhoods surrounding the Arnold Arboretum, which is Jamaica Plains neighborhood. And so they started canvassing the area, literally going door to door with posters, say, have you seen this child? And as they were doing that, someone recognized the, the composite image and said, hey, it looks like that little girl that lived up the street. And it turns out that was her, Bella Bond. And so she was identified in November of 2015. And eventually her mother and her mother's boyfriend were convicted for her murder. It's really sad. I think Annie and I talk about this a lot, that this job can be sad a lot, but we just want to help. And we're willing to put up with the sad stuff if that means that we can help. 
The murder of Bella Bond really elevated the field of study, according to Lawrence. It kind of finally put forensic palynology on the map. Now, palynology is not a new field, but it is one that's growing. And there are still some things that all three researchers and those in palynology are trying to work out. Now, in order to use pollen to help solve crimes, you have to analyze the location it comes from. But that's a process within itself. And the locations of certain plants can change over time. An example of this would be in the early 1900s when the more bougie crowd wanted to show off their big trees. You can put trees and other plants in different locations from their origins. Think of like a rose bush in your front yard in an environment where roses don't grow. That, that's an ornamental. Just about every case we have, we deal with, they're called ornamentals. No plants that are being grown out of their native ranges simply because people want to put them there. Uh, those are both a blessing and a curse <laughs> for our analysis. We pull our hair out in frustration because a lot of the time it's undocumented. There's also the issue of time itself. Now, pollen grains can last a long time, millions of years, but plants go extinct and environments change. So for instance, like I did a cold case from like 1998 in Wisconsin. And I mean, if you look at like satellite photo, there was a vehicle that was like left at Lambeau Field and like satellite imagery from back then to now was like drastically different. So when I'm getting sediment samples from like the side of a highway from today versus when the murder happened in 1998, I know it's drastically different. Yeah, but Shannon brings up a, an excellent point of a, really an issue that we're always having to deal with we always have to deal with urbanization and just humans constantly changing and modifying the landscape in general. And that changes the pollen profile pretty significantly since it changes the plants. And of course, there's climate change. That is very relevant to when we're working on cold cases, especially the older the cases are, the more things have changed. So we always have to take that into account. Usually when, when we're analyzing no cases from like you know, as early as this, we're having to use information from that decade and not modern, since that doesn't really help too much. So we definitely see those issues when we're dealing with those kind of more longer term cases. In the present, it's harder to see, other than we have to keep updating, you know, doing more research as it comes out. Lawrence says they are continuously updating their systems, but it's hard to track in real time. Especially since plants are pretty sensitive to the environment to begin with, with even just uh, seasonal changes. So you no, know, for example, during a dry season, a drier year, plants will put out less pollen than they will during a wetter year. And what about for places like Arizona, where many plants still manage to thrive in a drier environment? But that's not even across the board, because plants that are drought tolerant will continue to put out the same amount of pollen, regardless of whether it's drier or you know, average. So we always have to take account into the, those types of variations, regardless in the analysis. Now, pollen can't answer every question or solve every crime. And like all fields of science, forensic palynology is evolving. Lawrence says that the work that they do is very hands-on. Basically, all of the, these issues kind of have kept palynology in a kind of traditional sense where we're still doing it the same way we had been doing it since the 1920s. <laughs> And so it's the person with the microscope counting. But when we come back, we look at the future of palynology and how researchers are working to bring new technology to the field. And we get to bring the lab back to Arizona to get those answers. Stay tuned.
Hi, my name is Melina Walling, and I'm a biosciences reporter at the Arizona Republic. You're listening to The Lab at AZ Central, where we'll take you across the state to answer bioscience questions big and small. What exactly is bioscience? Well, this season, it's robots that can talk to plants, solving crimes using pollen, and raising fish in the desert. If that sounds pretty weird, well, it is. But it's also life-changing stuff. And all of it is for people outside the lab. People like you and me. So if you're enjoying this episode so far, be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening. And you can follow us and our other Arizona Republic podcasts, Valley 101 and The Gaggle, on Instagram and Twitter. Now, back to the show. You're listening to The Lab at AZ Central. Pollen is everywhere, including right here in Arizona, where we have our own unique plants. Cactus pollen is really unique. If we collect uh, cactus pollen, uh, we can definitely say it's somewhere here. This unique pollen that you can only identify, you can only find at certain locations. That's Dr. Daoqing Tong, an associate professor at the School of Geographical Sciences and Urban Planning at Arizona State University. She's part of a team of researchers from different universities who are all working on mathematical models. And these models can help with the process of analyzing the exact location of a pollen sample. Along with other researchers, she wrote a paper about using the geoforensic interdiction, or GoFind model. Now, this doesn't necessarily automate the entire process, but it allows people to use technology to make that pollen process easier. We construct mathematic models to identify what could be the possible origins based on the sample mix of pollen. So we calculate, for so what we want to construct all the most likely places that the origin could be involved. Remember in the first part of the episode when the palynologist said that it can be hard to track a pollen sample if the sample or plant is found in different locations? Tong says the model would help pinpoint or map where a pollen sample could have come from, while also taking into account other factors like weather and elevation. A model will be able to account for the possibility that the object or a persons could have been moved to multiple locations or traveled to multiple locations, as opposed to existing models. A lot of them, uh, those models just uh, focus, just all assume um, that only one location might be involved. Tong says this model also helps because, well, there are over 380,000 plant species in the world. If you were able to upload a pollen sample and needed a reference point for it, it would take a lot of work to get those over 380,000 pollen samples for that one reference point. A lot of uh, researchers would go to the field and collect some samples, but again, we cannot collect samples of everywhere. So those studies, again, they rely upon models. Of course, they will go to the field work to collect um, samples, to collect the data, but they cannot, we cannot afford to collect data on every each location. And like we heard before from our other three palynologists, factors like climate change affect this work. For example, as climate changes, so does the range of plant species, and that makes it hard for them to know where a pollen sample is coming from. 
So it's not like we will say 100% you would observe orange tree here. No. So we will have some kind of uncertainty associated with that observation. We can say a 75% chance you will observe a certain species at this particular location. That means climate change makes the outputs of these models less certain. Pollen can be used in so many things from solving cold cases to counterterrorism research to investigating counterfeit goods and even examining mass grave sites. The pollen is being used to link the movement of, uh, of bodies in mass graves in uh, Bosnia. Uh, so it's related to the war crimes and, and they've tried to kind of hide the, in the war crime by just moving mass uh, bodies to kind of bury the bodies in like separate locations. But pollens are being used to identify actually the site involved in the process. Pollen can do a lot and the field of palynology continues to grow. It's one where there's a lot of technology being developed and if somebody were to do this podcast in the next 10 to 15 years, there would definitely be more innovations to report on. And this podcast episode really illustrates the stories we want to tell in the lab. When we started reporting for a podcast about bioscience in Arizona, we didn't expect we'd end up talking about solving missing persons cases. But again, that makes this episode a little bit like everything we've talked about here in the first season. First, little things can tell us something about bigger things. On this episode, we're talking about pollen, something so small that can answer so many big questions. And on our first episode, you heard us explore fruit flies. Those tiny, tiny insects can help us uncover answers about the human brain. Second, everything's connected. This is not a climate change podcast, but almost every episode has mentioned climate change. Why? Because climate affects all living things. And as scientists do more research, whether they're studying how crops respond to drought or how non-native plants leave pollen on crime evidence, the changing climate is and will continue to affect everybody and everything. And maybe that leads us to the most important thing the science is teaching us. All this research is trying to answer a question. What's causing dementia? How do we keep food crops alive with less water? How do we solve a crime? And as much as scientists learn, the answers are never simple. We have covered some really interesting topics and spoken to a lot of people who are doing really innovative things in their fields. But there's no one solution for public health, for food supplies, for identifying a crime victim. There are big complex problems and a range of possible answers each with its own potential problems too. But what we found in each episode this season is that the problems are real and the answers may not be easy to find, but there are people out there working to respond to some of the big issues that affect us all. So with lots of questions and lots of possible answers, you might say that bioscience, the study of life, is a lot like life itself. Now this is the end of our first season. Next season, we'll be back and you'll learn even more about bioscience and how it helps people. I wanted to take a moment to thank all of the scientists and researchers and people who have shared their stories with us and taught us so much about bioscience in the state. Now we'll be back for season two, 
sooner rather than later. So stay tuned. And thanks for tuning into our first season. If you have questions about science, you can submit them at the lab at azcentral.com. And if you like what you heard today and want to know more, support us by subscribing at azcentral.com. Thanks for tuning into the lab at AZ Central, a podcast from the Arizona Republic at azcentral.com. Melina Walling contributed to the reporting in this episode. Josh Susong is our editor. Support for our independent coverage of bioscience at AZ Central comes from a grant from the Flynn Foundation. If you like politics, make sure to check out one of our other podcasts, The Gaggle. Also be sure to check out Valley 101, a podcast that answers all of your questions about the Valley, where you ask the questions and we find the answers. For The Lab at AZ Central, I'm Alexandra Watts.